You're listening to a sermon from the series, Church 101, an FFC teaching series through Titus. For more sermons and information, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Open up your Bibles to the book of Titus. We are in a series called Church 101 as we walk through the book of Titus. And we're going to be concluding and wrapping up the book uh, this morning. Uh, So we'll primarily be looking at chapter 3, but we'll be looking starting at chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, If you don't mind, I'll just read the chapter aloud. That'll give you the big scope, and then we'll dive in a little bit more intensely throughout our message. So Titus chapter 2, verse 15 through the end of the book. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another." But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicola. I worked on that and I still messed it. Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So we're wrapping up our series called Church 101, The Church's Conduct and Character Part 2 is is the title of today's sermon. Um, No doubt you uh, had, hopefully, some family and friends around the dinner table for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's a great time to get together with people and folks and relatives. And something that is very common around the Thanksgiving table is advice is given. Uh, Maybe even around your table, some interesting topics came up. Um, Maybe... um, no doubt advice was given to you, some advice, uh, some of the advice you endured, and some advice you soaked up like a sponge, right? Depending on who was giving that advice. That's a lot of the book of Titus. The book of Titus is advice from Paul to Titus, and no doubt Titus is soaking up this advice like a sponge. Titus is a young man who's shepherding a church, and he is looking to his mentor Paul for all the advice he could give him. Maybe around your dining room table, you had some topics come up 
Maybe the topic of politics came up around your table. What do we do following the election? Or what will the next four years entail? Maybe around the table, a topic that came up was advice for your future. If you had your parents in or you went to go see your parents, no doubt they probably looked for an opportunity to speak some advice into your life, to give you direction and how you should do it. Maybe around your dinner table, um, awkward stories from your past came up. If you have siblings, they probably tried this. People reminding you of how you used to be, or that one time you did that, and stories that you hope would be forgotten, but your siblings will never let them be forgotten. Or maybe even around your dinner table, there were things to avoid doing, or tips for success. Don't waste your time doing these things. Devote yourself and focus on these things. That right there is Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 covers a multitude of topics. It's advice from Paul to Titus. These are things, uh, these are Paul's final words to his son in the faith about how to shepherd the church as well as how to live life in those current days. Paul has addressed Titus on several issues so far throughout the book, all pertaining to teach Titus how to shepherd his church well. Titus 3 is his concluding thoughts. It's his postscript, you could say. He is going to list several topics and give young Titus his advice on these topics. So it's not going to flow real well like a letter would. It's going to be more like bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. There you go, buddy. So you're going to kind of see Titus 3 unfold that way. Let's remember that Paul is writing to Titus who, lead, who leads a single church. They're on the island of Crete. So to help us understand this text, it makes sense to understand that this letter could have been written to Todd and our leaders about First Family Church. It's written to one particular church. But we must take in mind, though, the cultural differences as well, which we will talk a lot about in just a little bit. So it's written to a particular church. We call this the visible church. The definition of a visible church is this. A church is a group of sinners who gather together in a general area who have been saved by a radical grace that transforms them to be wise, loving, and active servants in their city and the world. But there's one thing we must understand about every visible local church. And that is that every congregation is filled with two types of people, two audiences, if you will. There are saved and unsaved in every congregation. They gather together, but that does not necessarily make them believers. That was true at 64 AD when this letter was written, and that is true today in 2016 AD in First Family. It's lowercase c, church, a gathering of individuals who claim to be Christian, but that does not mean they all are. This is important to understand. Why do we bring this up? Because the two audiences will respond differently to the advice that is given by their pastor. And that's what we watch for. Let me explain. Paul is sharing godly but difficult advice to Titus. And Titus is going to have to return to his congregation and share this godly, difficult advice to them. And they will respond differently. The two audiences will respond differently. The true believers will receive it 
They'll receive it humbly and will desire to obey it. The unbelievers will balk at it. They will argue the points and will come up with reasons why they do not need to obey it. So you're going to see two different responses to these very difficult words that we just read in Titus chapter 3. So the more Titus and Todd preach truth, the more the audience will reveal themselves. While at the same time, some of the unbelievers will believe and repent. So all that to say, a church congregation is a mess. You have two audiences, believers and unbelievers, and they respond to the exact same truth completely differently based upon their heart. But while at the same time, the unbelievers are hearing the good news of Jesus and repenting and then trying to obey. So it's hard for the senior pastor to gauge what's going on. But by watching their responses to the truth, it helps us to see which category they're currently in. So this morning, as this difficult truth is presented to you, check your heart and your responses. And we will see what God has in store for us. So look at chapter 2, verse 15. Paul's final thoughts to his son in the faith and disciple. He says this, verse 15, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul is telling Titus, Hey Titus, be a good pastor to your people, bye. And then he gives them the list. He's telling Titus, Titus, it's going to be tough. Don't back down. Say these things with the authority you have been given. Be confident that these are God's words to your people coming through your mouth. You're a spokesperson for God. What you're going to say is there's two audiences. One of the audience is not going to like the word that they're going to be told, and they're going to react. They're going to respond. Stay strong. Be confident and understand the words are from God. So number one, these are the list in verse 15 that he gives them. Exhort. Exhort means to call them to do. The second thing is to rebuke. Call them to stop. And the third one is let no one disregard you. Or set the example, Titus. You better be doing these things as well. So remember, whenever difficult words are shared, Titus, you will get backlash. So remember the authority you have. Stand strong and make sure you practice these things as well so they see your example. That's the message. That's the preface to chapter 3. It's going to get difficult. These words are going to be hard to hear. Stand strong. These are the words of God. Know your authority has been given to you. So for our sermon this morning, we're just going to look at the four exhortations and rebukes. We're going to kind of break them up into four different categories. They're heavy. They're difficult. We're going to look at them and weigh them, understand the context that was given to them at that time, and then apply them to our day, time today. All right, so number one, exhortation or rebuke number one is found in verses one through two, and I'm summarizing it this way. Number one, remind the Christians to submit to rulers and authorities. Be loving, kind, and gentle to everyone. Did the topic uh, around your Thanksgiving table today, uh, on Thursday, did the topic of the election come up at all? For your sake, I hope not. But it does come up in our text this morning, and so we're going to talk about it. One of the things that Titus, or Paul gives to Titus, is to remind them, who's the them? 
That's his church people, people that come to his congregation who claim to be Christians. Remind them to do what? The cursed S word, submit. Submit means to come underneath, to not fight against, to not rise up against, to not demean, and do not revolt. His words to them in that context, to that particular leader, in that uncertain future, is to submit. Remind them to submit to who? Rulers and authorities. So the question we need to wrestle with to understand this is who were the rulers and authorities at that time? So that we can get some perspective and understand the context. I want to introduce you to Nero. This is Nero. Nero was born, I'm not a historian, but I think some of these are really interesting. So I think this will help. Nero was born in 37 AD. For those of you who know your Bibles, Jesus was put to death, crucified in 33 AD. So he is born right after Christ is put to death by the Roman Empire. Um, He and his mother, it was a conspiracy with him and his mom so that he would take the throne. He was not the heir to the throne. Um, The ruler at that time was his uncle. So his mother married his uncle so that he could establish the throne, so that he could take the throne. His mother and him soon realized that dad slash uncle was no longer super excited about Nero taking the throne, so they conspired to kill him. So this is a little bit about Nero. Um, Then Nero, a few years later, decided he had to kill off his mom because she realized that she couldn't control Nero and, and she wanted his brother to be the ruler. So he conspired to have her killed as well. Then once he took the throne at, at 16, he uh, learned that in order to have full power, he needed to murder all who opposed him. For several years, his job was just a clean slate to get rid of everyone who opposed him as the leader. So at the age of 16, he takes the throne, and he is named today as one of the most vicious rulers ever to live. And this is who Paul is writing to Titus about. These rulers, these authorities. Titus was written in 64 AD, and um, Nero is on the throne until about 67 AD when he takes his own life. Nero is known for his treatment of Christians. If you ask people, if you ask historians, what do we know about Nero? He is known for his poor treatment of Christians. That's his legacy. When Rome was set on fire, which we don't know a whole lot about who did that, some think it was Nero himself. When Rome was set on fire in 64 AD, Nero blamed the Christians because they were an easy target. You got to dump this on somebody. Who are these people that claim to follow the way? Let's dump this on them. In retaliation for the Christians setting Rome, the Roman Empire, on fire, he lit them on fire. Um, Nero would take posts and he would put the Christians on the post. He would dip them in oil. He would light them on fire and stand them up. And the burning Christians would be the lanterns for his parties at night. He is also known for persecuting Christians worse than any other leader in history. He would also, what he would do is he would take animal skins and he would wrap the Christians in these animal skins and tie them up and then he would feed them to the wild dogs who were hungry 
and the wild dogs would rip Christians to pieces. Um, Nero also thought it was interesting that their leader was crucified on a cross, Christ, and so he followed suit. So he learned the crucifixion, and he would crucify Christians to be, so that they could follow after their leader. Nero also thought scourging was really interesting and whipping. And so he became an expert at the scourge. And he would scourge Christians, and he loved it because it didn't kill them. They would die later from bleeding out. He thought that was incredible. He would make Christians fight in the Colosseums as gladiators in order to have great entertainment. You have to keep having a crop of new fighters. And so he would force the Christians. He would uh, arrest them and force them to fight in the Colosseum as gladiators, which guaranteed their death. It was never in their favor. And this book, Titus, was written right before Paul was put to death by Nero around 68 AD. That's the rulers and authorities we're talking about. So knowing the horrors of that day, what do you think Paul would say to these Christians about how to live in that horrible society under that particular leader with a very uncertain future? What would he say? What do you think Paul would say to us about how we ought to respond to the current election? What does Paul say to Christians? Does he say, Christians, demand your rights. Criticize your leaders. Protest to get your way. Vocalize your disgust. And have heated conversations with anyone willing. He does not. Our orders are in verses 1 and 2. He says, submit He says, obey. He says, be ready to do good. He says, never speak evil of anyone. He says, do not get into fights or arguments. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. To these Christians who are facing their impending death, he says, submit. Be obedient, be gentle, be kind. And he'll explain later why. So let me sum it up for you this way. He's telling them, remember you're a Christian and follow your leader's example, Christ. For your leader was falsely accused by corrupt leadership. Your leader had a rigged, fake trial which sealed his sentencing. Christ was mocked and then tortured by these authorities, and Christ was crucified on a cross by these Romans only 30 years prior. And what was the example of Christ? He submitted. Why would we think our response to our culture and our context and our leadership would be any different? Remember the two audiences I talked about? Once you hear difficult news, you respond. Believers humbly accept and try to obey. Unbelievers balk. They argue and will not obey. Remember the audiences. That's in every single congregation. All right. Exhortation rebuke number two. He says, remind them of who they once were. Verse three, he says, remind them of who they once were. Maybe this weekend around the Thanksgiving table, if you have siblings, they brought up your past. 
They told embarrassing stories of who you once were. Stories of what you were like when you were a child in middle school or high school. Embarrassing stories you wish would be forgotten, but stories you know your siblings will never let be forgotten. Paul tells Titus to not let his people forget. I find that really interesting. He tells his people, don't forget who you once were. And then he gives them a list of who they once were. And Paul includes him in this category. Paul, again, is taking another opportunity to remind Titus and his church of the gospel. That's the point of verse 3. You see, we say this a lot, and it needs to be reminded. The gospel has two parts. The bad news and the good news. And whenever we share the gospel, we remind ourselves and our hearers of the bad news. And that's what Titus is doing for his congregation. And what Paul is doing for Titus. So this is the bad news. This is who all of us once were. We were all once enemies of God. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to sin. We were haters of good and deserving of his eternal wrath. That's us. That's you. That's me. That's who we once were. Some of us balk at that a little bit and say, Ah, I was saved when I was six. That wasn't true of me. That was your heart. And that's what God saved you from. When I think back to my high school years, my friends that never accepted Christ, that's them today. And that was my impending future because that was in my heart. That was who I was. That was what was true of me, even though maybe I didn't have opportunities to respond to all of those. But that's how I would have. You see, nothing humbles you more than being reminded of who you once were. Instead of pointing our fingers at the world out there, it reminds us that we were all just like them. This humbles you. This reminds you of the enemy isn't out there, it's in here. My greatest problem is not the world. My greatest problem is my own sinfulness. You see, we all struggle with hating the type of people we once were. We look at that list and think, ah, those people drive me crazy. And yet that's exactly who we once were. And it is the bad news of the gospel that prepares us to receive the good news of the gospel. Because you see this list and you say, oh no, Lord, is there any hope? Lord, save me. And that's where exhortation and rebuke number three comes in. Look at verses four through 17. He tells Titus, remind them of the radical grace of God. He says, Titus, don't just remind them of the bad news. Always remind them of the good news and never stop. Never stop reminding them of the good news. I love it. If you look at the book of Titus, the gospel's in chapter 1, the gospel's in chapter 2, and the gospel again is now in chapter 3. Paul is reminding Titus of the gospel And he tells Titus, you remind your people of the gospel all the time. So the question we need to ask is, what is the gospel? How does Paul lay out the gospel for us in chapter 3? What do we have to be thankful for as Christians? You see, in this culture, to be a Christian sealed your fate. It sealed your death. So the congregation, the mixed congregation, is asking that question, is it worth it? Why do I claim to follow Christ why, why do I want to be a Christian? Why am I here? Is it worth it? And Paul's going to address that. 
I hope, I hope that the gospel was sometime was, was brought up around the Thanksgiving table. Maybe while you went around the circle and we said what you were grateful for. Maybe afterwards, while you were watching TV or playing games, you shared that you were so grateful for the gospel. This is what Paul is doing for us. So what is the gospel? In verse 4 it says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He says in verse 4 that God miraculously saved you. Think about that. No doubt Paul is reminded of his conversion. As he's sharing about the conversion of Titus and of his believers in his church, no doubt Paul is reminded of his conversion in Acts chapter 9. Paul on his way to get permission and paperwork from the rulers in authority is interacted with Christ. In Acts chapter 9, verse one, uh, verses 1 through 5, it reads this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What is true of Paul's story? One miraculous, amazing day, the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. It was an amazing day. Out of nowhere, miraculous, God showed up and saved him. That might not seem like your story. That might not feel like that's your life. But the theology is true. No matter how old you were, I was six when I got saved. When a Sunday school teacher, by very ordinary means, which is happening right now, took it upon her opportunity and her privilege was to share the gospel. I was a pastor's kid, sitting in Sunday school like I was supposed to. And that day, the loving kindness and goodness of Christ Jesus showed up. I did nothing to deserve it. I did nothing to earn it. There wasn't anything special about my tie that day. The loving kindness of God showed up, and he miraculously saved me. That's true of you. It might not feel as awesome or as historic as Paul's conversion, but the theology is the same. That God miraculously saved you. Saul, on his way to persecute the Christians, is saved by a miraculous grace. Let's see what else is true of our, of our salvation. Let's see what else is true of our gospel. In verse 5, it says, He washed us. He cleansed us. He forgave us. He took away our dirty rags and gave us clean clothes. He clothed us in Christ's righteousness. Verse 5 also says that He brought you back to life. Ephesians 1 says you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. might not have felt like that that day, but that day he brought you back to life. He saved you. In verse 5, it says he gives you his spirit. He gives you his spirit. In verse 6, it says he rightly poured out his love upon us because of Jesus. He poured out his love upon us. The love of God was poured out upon you because of who? Because of the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, it says, he justifies us. Justified means to declare us righteous. To declare unrighteous people righteous. God in his love and his grace 
calls sinners saints. He adopts us into his family. And then verse 7, it says, he calls us heirs. He adopts us. He places us into his family. He takes us as beggars and claims us as his own. This list right here, it makes me think of my mind of Christmas Day when I was growing up. My parents would have the Christmas tree and there'd be presents all around the tree and we'd be all excited to rip into them. And then my grandparents would show up and they'd be like, Travis, Todd, Christy, help us get presents from the car. We're like, yeah. So we'd run out to the car with just bags full of gifts. We didn't care what the gifts were, right? We just wanted lots of them. And so we'd go out to the car and we'd be carrying bags of gifts and arms full of gifts. And it was just so fun to pile them around the Christmas tree and just for a second just stare at the tree like, this is going to be good. And all these gifts and these presents are just overflowing this Christmas tree. And I just assumed for a second that every single one of them had my name on it. And I'm just staring at this tree, overwhelmed with the goodness and love of my family. That's this list. You look at this list and every single one of these terms is like a Christmas present that God gives you. And it's a theological term. And as we dig and we open and we search inside of it, we just see again and again the immense grace and love of God, our Father. And each one of these is packed with beautiful truth of how much he loves us. A movie that you're going to be watching on TV soon is A Christmas Story. And I can't help but think of this picture of Randy. It's Christmas morning and he's hugging his blimp and he's just surrounded by the wrappings and the trappings of his Christmas presents. And he's just exhausted by the goodness and love of his family. And that's this list all the amazing love and wonder of your Father has bestowed upon you, how He has richly blessed you and poured out His love upon you. And as we look at this list, we're kind of inundated with the greatness and goodness of God our Father. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul reminds Titus of in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And this is the gospel that Titus reminds his congregation of week in and week out and day in. And day out. And it's your job, Christian, to unwrap these theological terms and to see the beauty and the wonder inside of each one of them. Adoption, justification, what are all these terms? Rip them open, look at them, cherish them, see the beauty and wonder of God. We get this question a lot, and I think it's a good question. Why do we need to be constantly reminded of the gospel? Why again, every Sunday, does the gospel come up in our sermons? Why again is Pastor Todd reminding us of the gospel? Why is this so important? And I think this will be helpful to you. This has been helpful to me. There are 168 hours in a week. 167 of those hours, you live in a works-based world, right? You receive a paycheck for the work you do. You earn tips depending on how pleasing you are and how many refills you got. You earn promotions based upon your overtime and your hard work and your intervention. You live in a world that believes in karma. You believe, or we, we live in a world that even in your schools, elementary and middle school and high school, we live in a world of the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you do unto them, as you want done unto you. And we live in a justice system where you get what you deserve. That's the world you live in, 167 hours a day. At least one hour a week, 
you have to be reminded that God doesn't work that way. There's got to be at least one hour a week where that world doesn't coincide with this world. With the world as God is your ruler and authority, where God is your king, doesn't work that way. And then in this text, in this list, we see these words that are otherworldly, that don't make sense in the context you live. Grace. Unmerited favor? The world doesn't understand that. It doesn't make any sense. It's because it's from God. What about the phrase, it is finished? Your boss has never said that word to you. It's never finished. Get to work. There's always more to be done. Your Heavenly Father announced over everything. Christ announced over everything. It's done. I did it. There's no more to be done. What about the word justified? That doesn't make sense in our world. The idea that to be declared righteous. Can you imagine a judge looking at a guilty person saying, I declare you innocent. There'd be uproar. There'd be rioting. But God, our Father, has the right and the responsibility and the freedom to declare filthy people, guilty people, righteous. That's justification. Adoption? We hear that word here and there. Man, that's true of us chosen, that's inside of every one of your hearts to be picked. For somebody, somebody to announce over you, I want you. You're mine. What about a free gift? There's no such thing as a free lunch in the world you live in. But for God, free gift of salvation has been granted to you. You see, you desperately need to, to hear announced over you the grace and love of God. That is why that is why we remind you of the gospel every single week. The greatest news in the world is that no matter who you once were, remember the list? That no longer matters. Who you are now changes everything, and you didn't do anything to deserve it. You need that preached to you as much as possible. Verse 4, one day, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, it appeared. And it is your pastor's job to remind you of that great news every single time we see you. That's his job. That's what Paul's telling Titus. Every time you meet, preach the gospel. Pastor Todd, every time you meet, you preach the gospel. That's your job. All right, exhortation, rebuke number four, our final one. It's found in verses 8 through 11. It's this. Remind them how heirs live. Remind them how heirs behave. That's how I'm going to summarize these verses. He says, as children of God, how then ought we to conduct ourselves? You claim to be a Christian, mixed audience. You claim to be a Christian. Let's see it. Let's see that you truly are. And he gives them a list. Paul loves lists. First one he says is, devote yourselves to good works. He calls them to be active servants. Be active servants. The second one he says is avoid foolish controversies or arguments or pointless arguments that don't accomplish anything. Avoid those. Avoid foolish genealogies or trying to prove that you're something special because of who you're related to or looking back into the corridor of time to prove your significance. Ignore that. Don't worry about it. Avoid dissensions. These are small areas of disagreements. We call these open-handed arguments. We love so much, so much to discuss and argue over 
if we're going to be honest, some of these are just open-handed arguments. Things that we wouldn't split the church over. We discuss and we argue a lot. The next one he says in his list is, avoid quarrels about the law. This is trying to prove you're right. Trying to prove you're justified based upon looking at the law. In the youth group, it's this question. Is it really a sin to... And you get some weird question, right? That's, that's what we do in middle school and high school. Is it really a sin to... Aren't I, aren't I okay if I do this? That's quarreling about the law. And the last one. And avoid brothers who do these things. Let me read verses 10 and 11 for you. It says uh, this. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. I see this verse is talking to us about this individual who claims to be a brother, but that won't listen to the difficult advice that is given. He falls into the second category of the audience. He's not truly a believer, and Paul is telling Titus to treat him as such. Treat him as the unbeliever he is. Don't waste your time on him. Love him. Care about him. Greet him. Meet his needs. But don't waste your time. So let me sum it up by saying this. I think what Paul is telling Titus is, be busy doing good and don't waste your time with things that are unproductive. Does that make sense? I mean, think about the culture that they were living with. To claim yourself as a Christian, put a timetable on your life. For you to meet in this house, in this church, and to be claimed as a Christian meant your future was certain. You're either going to get the bear, or you were going to get the pole, or you were going to get the the gallows, or you were going to get the Colosseum. To claim as a Christian meant your life was coming to an end. That was its certainty. And for Paul to tell Titus, he's telling his people, why would you waste a moment of your life? Your life is short. It's coming to an end. Don't waste a second of it. Live every second you have for the glory of God and to make his name known. So what should you be busy doing? Be busy doing good works and don't waste your time with this list of meaningless conversations. But remember the two audiences we've talked about. He's identifying them. He's identifying those that will hear this advice and will accept it and try to obey. And then there will be an audience in his congregation that will balk at it, argue it away, and come up with reasons why they don't have to believe it. And I think he's talking about good works. I want to talk about good works just for a second. I think these are some helpful things about good works. Good works don't save you but they sure do identify you as an heir. Does that make sense? He's not saying, do good works to be saved. Here's a list of things you should do to earn God's love. He's saying, no, but they identify you. It determines which of the two audiences you're in. It lets the senior pastor know which category you fall into. They don't save you, but they sure do identify you. And then I think he's also saying is, don't do good works to prove you are saved. Do good works so that others might get saved. Love your neighbors. Care for the world. Meet the needs of widows and orphans. Why? So maybe you'll get an audience with them. So maybe you can share the grace and the mercy of God with them. 
maybe the goodness and kindness of God might show up that day as you're serving them, as you're loving them. And what is the greatest of all good works? Proclaiming the gospel. That's the great commission. Don't just go into all the world. Go into all the good world, the world and share the good news. That's the great commission we've been tasked with. The greatest of deeds, the greatest of good works is to open your mouth to proclaim the goodness and kindness of God our Father. To proclaim the bad news is also, and also the good news. So don't do good works to prove you are saved. Good, do good works so that others might get saved. Paul, in his final words to his son Titus, is hitting him with bullet point after bullet point after bullet point, and then Paul will soon face his own death at the hands of Nero. And he's telling his people, his congregation, man, be active servants. Proclaim the gospel. Don't forget you need the gospel. Love the world. And then face death well. What a good word for us. Our culture has changed. Our context has changed, praise the Lord. But the truth of of Titus 3 has not changed. That is true for us. And let the audiences fall where they will. Those in this room that love Christ know that that's who we once were and now have been saved. We hear this difficult advice. We humbly accept it. And we aim to obey it. Others in this room will balk at it, argue it away, and come up with reasons why that does not apply to me. And Paul warned Titus of that and said, have courage, young man. Preach the truth. Be confident of the authority you've been given and share the good news. Lead that church well. Shortly after this, Paul will be put to death and Titus and his congregation will face the same future as well. So what good news for us? What good warnings? What good exhortations for us to hear as well? We have so much to be thankful for, don't we? the culture and context we live in, the love and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's sum this all up in a take-home truth, if you will. The church's conduct and character, part two, our inward transformation by the Holy Spirit, it insists that we live godly lives within society and the church. One way that's helpful for me to explain this is the difference between application and implication. Application would be, hey, Christians, you better get to work because the love of God is dependent upon it. An implication would be, hey, Christians, you're going to get to work. See the difference? Christians, hear this advice and obey it. Man, that's who I am. That's my new nature. As an heir, that's how I desire to live and obey. So Christians, the same is true for you. As your leadership, we insist that we live good, godly lives within society in this church, knowing the cost that, has, that is the potential.